Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. Thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Um, I'm regretful that, that uh, our last episode, our midweek episode there, Yeah. we spent the first like 12 minutes boring people about our website. There's nothing boring about our website, David. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, <laughs> when there was a news story just... Right for the plucking. That I know. I, I can't imagine how we forgot to talk about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't reno- I don't know all the details, David, but I know the the big ones. Okay. Okay. So, what happened? As I'm sure most of our listeners probably know, a man was shot in a movie theater. Yep. Uh, during a screening of the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Okay. <laughs> um, f- essentially, for talking during the movie. Okay. Um. Now he is not dead. No, he's he's fine. Okay. Um, the story is this, as I understand it, uh, the man was there with his family. They were talking. Uh, guy behind them asked them to be quiet. Uh, they did not. This guy got irate and <laughs> threw his popcorn in the little boy's face. Uh, okay. And then when the father of the boy stood up to make something of it. Okay. Like a father should. Yeah. He was shot. Okay. See, and this is why I can't get behind this 100%. No, yeah, we cannot. 100%. Well, yeah. I'll, here's the thing. Okay. Let's imagine that the person that got shot, okay, the fact that he did not die is, you know, that makes it okay somehow in my book. But, like, the fact that, like, the guy who told them to shut up, like, he was being he was being very belligerent. Like, he's, you know, throwing stuff in a kid's face. Like, yeah. That that's not good. Like the only, not that it's okay to shoot people, but like I was imagining in my head that the person that was talking was like a Max Katie in in uh, the new Cape Fear, like right. just right. like ah, that's funny what's happening on the screen, and just being loud. And then someone's like, uh, "Excuse me, sir, sir, can you please be quiet?" And he's like, "Whatever, jerk, I'm not, be-, you know." But and in then your, he in gets your little shot. Imagine, uh, yeah. imagining there, you have to realize that. That like tweety little guy <laughs> that, who's being polite is also armed. That's right. He went into the That's theater right. armed. It's my, yeah, it's Max Cady in Cape Fear meets Michael Douglas in Falling Down. You know, and it's <laughs> just that's that's how I imagine it. And that, in that situation, it's like, all right, I can get on board with that to a certain degree. But now uh, you've seen Falling Down. Yes, I have. You know he's not supposed to be a, a hero. What now? <laughs> You're not really supposed to be rooting for defense in that movie. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess, well, I guess we got something to talk about next week. Um, no, yes, I know he's not. I know he's not a hero. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how many people actually, uh, when they talk about that movie, treat him as one. And, yeah. Uh, because people are like, they're like, oh man, this is already off topic, but that's all right. But uh, you know, I, I would hear people be like, oh man, like I get so angry at that stuff, and I was like. I think it, it was when I worked at a video store and I was talking to one of the other employees and they're like, I said, did you pull a gun on these people? Did yeah. you fire at all? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, okay, why didn't you do that? And they're <laughs> like, well, because it's crazy. I'm like, that's right, it is crazy. <laughs> you know, that's that's one of the reasons. I remember when, uh, did you take, I don't think you were in this class, the road movie class? I was on that class. Okay. No. Uh, in it, uh, the the instructor, who's usually pretty spot on with his analysis, he talked about how Robert Duvall's, his entire character and that entire part did not seem necessary to him. And I remember thinking, like, 
that's way off. Like the idea is both of these men have been pushed and pushed by uh-huh. in different ways, but kind of in the in a similar way. Uh, one of them, his wife left him. The other guy, his wife is kind of domineering. One of them had his child kind of taken from him and divorced. The other lost his uh, daughter. Yeah, you know, uh, due to sudden infant death syndrome. And so, like, the idea that these guys are just constantly being pushed, but one guy just somehow, simply because he realizes there are certain things you don't do, is able to keep it in check. That doesn't mean he likes it, but he's able to just live like we all do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, when he said, like, oh, that character's not really that necessary, I'm like, he's the entire point of the movie, you know? (laughs) But, but yeah, so uh, that's neither here. See, like... Yeah, so can't you imagine defense going into a movie theater and getting and standing up, you know, and uh, being like, "This guy shouldn't be talking" or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, he's he's trying to get across town. He's not going to stop and see a movie. That's true. <laughs> Although that'd be a fi- that'd be an interesting beat for that character. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that uh, I, I was telling you before the show that uh, when I first heard about that. Um, that story i remember thinking like oh my gosh like that's you know i feel like like movie fans who like hate when people talk during movies i think instinctively they just you know you don't really think of it as real something that's happening to real people yeah you just hear it and you're like you're like "Ah, that's pretty awesome it's like not really no yeah i had the exact same thing i was like like for a split second i was like finally yeah and then i was like oh that's horrible right and then i started thinking about uh the uh the public service announcement that you and I did uh, right. many, many months ago. And uh, and I was like, all right, so in case that guy's a listener and tries to pin it on us, we can say, like, no, look at this. Listen to this. Clearly we're not in favor of it yeah, because that man would kill himself. Um, but anyway, so uh, now, David, let, let me ask you this. Have you seen any movies lately? Oh, we're done talking about the guy getting shot? Oh, if you have other things to talk about, uh, you know. Well, I just want, like, because, again, more, there's more gray area here. Because okay, Because I, right. I think it's a terrible thing. Yeah. But I'm kind of glad the word is out. Right. Like, okay. It's Fair kind enough. of a deterrent yeah. now, you know? All right. Like, I'm hoping people will second-guess talking in the movie theater because the stakes have been raised now. Yeah, because you never know when there's a psychopath yeah. seeing... The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. <laughs> that fascinates me. <laughs> that a guy crazy enough to just be carrying around a gun is like, I got to see this movie. Like, him being in any enclosed area for, like, three hours is... <laughs> I don't know if I like that in general, but, uh, but yeah. You know, somebody... Uh, w- w- when I went and saw Gran Torino, uh, the, um, th- those people, I guess, didn't didn't watch the news because uh, <laughs> some, uh, some of them were... We're talking a little bit uh, over here, uh, including a couple of 15-year-olds. And I was like, why are they seeing this movie? But, oh, well. I don't know. With ki- I find, is there any, uh, I know that this question is going to backfire on me, uh-huh. but is there any ever any moment when you're kind of okay with people talking? Like, I, I, it just depends on the movie and the nature okay. of the talking. Okay. I mean, if someone... Certain movies lend themselves to people like talking at the movie, okay. and, it, and it's fun. You yeah. know, what I don't like is people like having conversations and stuff, right? During the movie, and I generally don't like people talking at the screen either. But sometimes it's fun. Yeah, like, if you go and see Midnight Meat Train or something like that, okay, 
Right. I can yeah. see that. Um, or, or, and then sometimes it's just something that's so weird. Uh, I when I saw when I saw Chuck a lot in the theater. Okay. There was this guy who was just like just like a row ahead of me and down some. Yeah. And anytime there was any like big reveal or big moment, he would like audibly react to it like "ooh" or <laughs> "oh," like the whole movie. And I thought it was fun. Well, didn't. When you and I went and saw the Scarlet Empress at the yeah. uh, at the music box, there was a guy who apparently went to. I that was like the only one of those that I saw because it was like a Saturday. Well, I used matinee. to see that guy all the time. Yeah, and so he's he a fun a guy who obviously loves movies. Yeah. If you go, uh, if you're a Chicago listener and you go to a lot of like, uh, you know, screenings of older movies, particularly old Hollywood movies. Yeah, you might see a guy. Uh, a, a somewhat large man with a long ratty beard. Yeah. Uh, and he does the, about the same thing. Yeah. He, he he reacts. He's just so giddy with enjoyment of these movies. Yeah. And you can't hold it against him. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, at first it just annoyed me, but then like it's like, well, he's not doing this like like uh, in the Scarlet Empress. There's a couple moments of kind of humor, or there's there's a few moments like that are similar to the 1998 version of Elizabeth, where like oh. Shit's going down, and this uh-huh. woman is going to kill everybody. Um, and so, like, those little... And, of course, it's Marlene Dietrich, who's awesome. Um, yeah. And so, like, every moment when she gets that that look in her eyes that says, oh, someone's going to die, he, this guy over here is like, oh Yeah. Uh-oh. And it's like, well, you don't need to say that, but it... You know, it comes from... It really is almost like dealing with, for lack of a better term, kind of a kind of a kid because it's like he can't help himself he's having so much fun and part of me part of me wonders like i wish i could have that much fun yeah but you know i i i always thought that guy was kind of like weird and eccentric and stuff you know yeah. see him at these movies all the time and then one time i went to see i think it was when i went to see the bullfighter and the lady mm-hmm. uh and uh i got on the same bus as him and some other people who were at the screening mm-hmm. that he knew and like rode the bus i didn't like ride with him but just i could hear the conversation and yeah. that dude like knows his shit like yeah. he was talking about movies uh in a way that i envied he knew everything about old hollywood well maybe when you when maybe david when we get to his point we'll just be laughing at every everything <laughs> will seem like heightened to us because we will have achieved knowledge of everything in film <laughs> yeah <laughs> so at that point we just don't care anymore but uh but yeah, so that yeah, the idea of talking in in movies is something that is fascinating to me and it it bothers me to I almost a uh maybe a, a an extreme degree. Like any time like somebody like even whispers something to the other person like behind me or something like that. Like you can tell they're whispering like like what did he just say? Like maybe they just didn't hear it completely. Uh-huh. Like I will, I will whirl around and give them the meanest look, and it's like, and then like every once in a while, it's like, why, why am I doing this? Like they, they can't see my stare. This is just for me, and I just need to calm down a little bit. So I, I I've achieved more of a Zen state where I could just block it out at this point. Yeah, I, uh, I can't. Except when people bring babies to R-rated movies and that, they make noise. Yeah, or just children to R-rated yeah. movies. Like anybody, like any kid like under five. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Any kid under, say, 12 to a certain type of R-rated movie is a little off-putting. 
Yeah, but, but at uh, least like they're gonna keep their mouth shut. It's right. Not, it's not my problem. That they're you know seeing something that they <laughs> right can't process correctly. But right. it's the kids who make noise. Yeah, and I mean wh- I don't know like why. It's weird. I used to when I was younger. I'm I'm like why won't that kid just shut up? But now it's like because it's a kid. It's the adult that you should be mad at here. You yeah. know, not. Uh, I mean, I understand. I don't know. Like I. I don't feel any desire to have a kid right now. Uh-huh. Um, I want to eventually, but it's it's hopefully when that time comes, I I will have the presence of mind to be like, okay, I'm not going to be seeing movies for a while. Right. Time to get Netflix, you know. Yeah. And even then, I probably won't be able to watch a movie all the way through. But uh, I don't know. I just it it bothers me the idea of uh, <sighs> going to start sounding like comedy and everything else. But uh-huh. the uh, the idea that Somebody, I, I mean, I don't care how much you like movies or, or whatever it is you like. Just the idea, it's like, oh, I've had a child now, but I don't want to stop doing what I did before. Well, you, can, you, you, you have to. Well, I think more often it's, uh, this is cheaper than a babysitter. No, that's true. You know? Yeah. That's one thing I like about the the uh, the Arclight, and there's lots of things I like about the Arclight, but mm-hmm. people talk about, you know, they don't let you in after five minutes, five minutes of the movie started. Yeah. Uh, you know, they keep their prices high to keep out, you know... Make, yeah, to make sure it's people who actually really want to see the movies. Yeah. And the other thing is, there are no children's prices at the ArcLight. And no hmm. matter how young the child, you're going to pay the full $15. Yeah. Even if that kid's going to sit on your lap, you you're, yeah, you have to pay for a ticket. Hmm. So that, that you, you don't find a lot of uh, children at the ArcLight, which is a good thing. That's true. I di- even, when I saw, even when I saw Wizard of Oz there, they were like... Only a couple of kids there, but yeah. I guess, uh, I don't know, maybe Wizard of Oz doesn't appeal to kids uh, these days. Oh, that's not true. I hope so. I think it'll, I hope uh, I think it'll appeal to kids forever. All right. So, uh, sorry for that uh, weaving in and out of uh, that topic, but, uh, but uh, yeah, we've been talking for about 15 minutes now. Well, let's get into it, shall we? All right. Uh, a while back, we did an episode where we talked about <laughs> the idea of uh, journeyman filmmakers. Yes. And actors. Yes. Um... We probably got more contentious responses off that episode than any other episode we've done. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, okay. I thought we were pretty clear in that episode that when I use the term journeyman filmmaker, I do not mean it at all to be less than or insulting in any way. Uh-huh. Like, I, I, like, I think we stated it about four or five times. Yeah. Uh, but uh, people just kept saying, like, how can you call so-and-so a journeyman filmmaker? He's great. I'm like, yes, he is. He can still be, you can still be a journeyman filmmaker and be great, but I feel like maybe in certain, in certain film lover circles, the idea of being what, you know, what we're going to talk about today, an auteur, yeah. that is more respected. And uh, so today we're talking about the auteur theory. David... What is that? Um, the auteur theory, uh, as, as I recall from film school. Yeah. Because I'm sure most of our listeners have never been anywhere near a film school. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I even bothering to spell this out? The auteur theory, as you can tell from the term auteur, yeah. which means it, it's, it's French for author. Yeah. Uh, it comes from French critics uh, in like the like 40s and 50s. Yeah. Uh, and it's the idea that Though filmmaking is a collaborative art form, yeah, there is an author of it, and then that is the director. Yeah, the the, the director. It, it is the director's film. Mm-hmm. And so, 
the the success or failure, not financial, but right, but artistically, the, yeah, artistically, it falls to the director. Like if if there's an actor giving a bad performance, and that performance is kind of ruining the movie for you or something like that. Ultimate, I mean, yes, that actor and actress that they're not very good, but ultimately that's the director's fault for either casting the wrong person or if they were forced to cast that person not being able to get a good performance out of them mm-hmm. um, now before we get into the theory specifically I feel like we should talk about or you know what our response was when we first heard that theory um, when you fr- David in film school when you first heard the auteur theory did you subscribe to it did you think it was a good theory or do you did you have any objections to it well i think the auteur theory even if you don't know that it's called that Mm -hmm. has become kind of commonplace in film criticism yeah so i think i already sort of had been by being a film buff in high school and, and you know reading about film and watching films i had already sort of been conditioned to believe it was true whether i knew what it was called or not so Mm -hmm. i think it just seemed like common sense to me when i first heard it see and when i when i first heard it i just you know i i think it was pretty early in film school and even then i didn't have a full idea of what a director does Mm -hmm. i think i mean i'm sure honestly i think our audience probably knows but uh but to an average person you know, and even somebody like myself who at age, even at age 18, 19, when I was watching all kinds of movies and really loved film, there were directors that I liked and directors that I didn't like and that kind of thing. But I still didn't really know what a director did. Mm-hmm. I'm still a little shady on what a producer does. <laughs> but uh, but like. So when I first heard the auteur theory, I remember thinking that's like, well, I'm not sure if I agree with it, you know, because. It's like, well, there are like, and then I started to think, it's like, well, I think the film, you can call the author of the film, if you want to even use that term, which I wasn't comfortable with, you know, the author is, is whoever the strongest presence is, you know, it's like, it could be like, if, if a movie that clearly is about the script and really that's kind of it, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and the performances are meant, excuse me, are meant to, uh, enhance the script or play to the script and it's not really directed with a great deal of flair i remember things like okay well then that's the writer's movie or this is the actor's movie or the director of photography's movie and if it has all of these things then it's the director's movie and i remember that's that's how i first approached it Uh and then as i continued on in school and actually had to direct some things myself you know um you th- all of a sudden it came into sharp focus that like oh okay if if a movie is being played to uh if it's being made in such a way as to uh focus or emphasize the script that's a decision that the director is making everything is a decision that he makes or didn't make yeah you know um and so like so after a while like you said like I came to a I came to the conclusion kind of on my own and kind of late to the game, um, a conclusion that once I once I was there I you know I realized like something that you realized right away which is oh this is just common sense you know yeah but the thing is uh, was it you have more on that no go ahead I, 
Um, it's common sense now because it's essentially true now. Yeah. But that wasn't always the case. The auteur theory was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. Yeah. Because if you look, I mean, the old, like, especially the old Hollywood movies, you yeah. know, uh, up in, up into, through through the 40s and into the 50s, really, it was still kind of a factory type of thing. Yeah. Where you would hire a cinematographer to do his thing. You'd hire the costume person to do his thing or right. her thing often. Uh I don't know. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, and then they would e- each person would play his or her part. Right. And then it was when the, uh, the these these French critics started seeing the the American movies, uh, a lot of the noir movies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they started seeing common threads among right. the directors, and that's where it came from. And I think it sort of became. You know, over over there, uh, over in France, right? It became the way things were sort of done. Yeah. Uh, and then, once you got the sort of a new generation of filmmakers in the '60s and '70s, yeah. of, uh, in, in, in in America, these are people who had gone to film school, you know, and and uh, actually thought of ter- thought of film in terms of criticism. Right. And since the French were sort of the leaders at the time of film criticism, yeah that became the way they were taught and the way they came to think about it. So when they took over in the 60s and 70s, it just became commonplace, and it's been like that ever since. So, yeah, yeah self-fulfilling prophecy is pretty much the sum of what I was getting at there. Yeah, and I mean, and that's actually kind of why I mentioned before that, like, you know, uh, like if an actor did a poor job or something like that, like, oh, well, then the director just didn't cast that part well. But, you know... Back then, it's like, yeah, we got this actor under contract, and uh, we think he'd be good here. And the director's like, okay, yeah, uh, all right, I guess I'll do that then. You know, yeah, but I mean, he, they probably often didn't really even know any better. I mean, unless yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah. like people, the big name directors, like you know, John Ford could get whoever he wanted, right? Really, right. You know, uh, so I guess it was kind of true then. You know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's it sort of became calcified, I think, by the by the French and then by the sort of film school brats. Right. <laughs> now, as far as and you know, and the reason that we can tie this into a journeyman, uh, you know, the journeyman director concept is that like what we mentioned before is that a journeyman is somebody who can adapt his directing style to whatever genre he's working within, and he will to the point that you can't really you may not be able to immediately tell who the director is yeah his he has a style that is uh i mean this is connotatively going to sound insulting but undistinguished right i mean uh, some in the w- literal sense of the word it's an interesting thing cuz when i was uh when we first started getting the emails in response to the journeyman uh episode i remember i was uh venting to my uh my wonderful wife, Jen, and uh, she commented, she's like, you know, she's like, I don't take the concept of journeyman uh, director. She's like, I don't take that as an insult at all. Somebody could make the argument that he's a better director than an auteur because he is more able. He's probably a better craftsman. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Because he is more able to do what the film requires rather than just bring whatever the film is to him, you know. I mean, some could make the argument that an auteur, like a true auteur, is somewhat 
selfish or self-centered. It's just like, I'm going to make this into something of mine. Right. But the the upside of that is you tend to get more... You tend to get a higher form of art from those type of people, right? Because it's more it's channeled through a uh, an auteur channels his vision through well he channels his movie through his vision, right? You know, uh, and so it yeah it becomes more artistic by by definition I think yeah. Uh, and and you can usually and because they're they're bringing whatever it is whatever the story is or whatever to themselves and as you say filtering it through their vision it will probably be a great deal more personal. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons that, like, like Orson Welles, you know, he, I mean, he likes to talk about himself to a certain degree, but he always said that it's just like, he's like, just watch my movies. If you want to know about me, just watch my movies. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, I'll just tell you fun stories about myself that may or may not be true. You know, if you really want to find if you really want to find out who I am, just watch the like he he was very much aware that he was putting a lot of himself in his movies. And, his, and you know, for those that uh, remember or our uh, Orson Welles episode, he definitely did that. I mean, you can always tell that it's like, oh, that's an Orson Welles film, both by virtue of the way, you know, the, the visual style and the audio style, but also just the types of stories that he's clearly drawn to. So, what are you chuckling about? Who was the critic who referred to some of his late period camera stuff as like Wellesley and tomfoolery? Oh, it was, like, it was something like Leonard Malden. Or, or yeah, like, I don't remember, but it uh, always makes me laugh because it's it kind of fits. Well, I think I think when we were I I think it's when you and I were living together and I and we had one of those really big thick like Leonard Malton movie books or something like that, uh-huh. and I think we just we had just watched F for Fake. No, it was when we watched Confidential Report or That's Mr. Right. Arcadden. Yeah. Uh, I think the one we called watched was called Confidential Report. Right. Otherwise known as Mr. Arcadden. Yeah. And uh, and we looked it up and it said, <laughs> Wellesley and Tom Foolery. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's about right. Because, you know, because he was a big fan of, like, magic and, like, kind of playing tricks on the audience and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and so then, yeah, lots of the camera sort of swooping in awkward ways around the room. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, but Yeah, and so, like... So who are some – well, okay, so how can the auteur theory manifest itself? You know, I mean, is it strictly visual or can it also – like, in my view, I mean, certainly visual is the most obvious. Yeah. You know, because, you know, people say it's like, oh, you can – I, I heard somebody say, you know, th- this is kind of a reductive statement, I'd, I'd say, but like yeah, but they I mean, said like – you can take one frame of their movie and you can always tell it's theirs. And it's like, okay, well, yes, fair enough. Yeah, I've heard similar things. Like, you, if you you can watch thirty seconds of the movie with no sound on, know who the director is, then he's an auteur. Yeah, that's the same thing. But and, and I don't think that's that is a very limiting way to look at it because yeah. you are pretty much only focusing on the visual there. Because a lot of a lot of auteurs are are writer directors. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a big thing that didn't ha- again. That's the thing that didn't happen that much back in old Hollywood. You know, we yeah. had. Uh, certainly, Billy Wilder uh, yeah. was probably one of the one of the big ones early on. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you, yeah, you you get it, you see it in other ways as mm-hmm. well. You know, I mean, I would definitely uh, as a as a director as a director of films, I would call David Mamet an auteur. Oh yeah, because he's he's so distinctive and not necessarily in in his visual style, although he is somewhat in his yeah. sort of like uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, sort of like. There's lots of lots of angles and uh, yeah, like right angles and he's sort of got a geometric way of setting up shots. Yeah, 
but in obviously the way he writes and the way that he directs his actors to yeah. to say his dialogue is a, a big stamp that he puts on his movies because if you look at movies that he's written that he didn't direct they don't talk like that no they don't i mean it's really it, and it's weird because like he has so much faith in his in his lines and yeah. admittedly when they're good they're great i mean and they're so memorable and so just fascinating yeah if for no other you know uh, for lack of a better term um but at the same time like he has said that like when he's directing somebody he'll just be like just say the lines just say the line he's like they'll provide their own inflection you know just say the lines and you'll be fine yeah and, and sometimes that works, and sometimes, sometimes you get red belt. Yeah, some t- exactly. And uh, sometimes you get Rebecca Pigeon uh, all the time. Uh, yeah, sometimes um, all the time you end up with Rebecca, Rebecca yeah. Pigeon. Although it actually kind of worked in State and Maine, her uh, very matter-of-fact way of saying the lines. Um, but, like, yeah, but yeah. You got a hook in your finger. That's you know what you got there? You got a fish hook in your finger. <laughs> um, yeah, people kind of shit on that movie, but that line in particular really <laughs> cracks me up. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> But, and and uh, Alec Baldwin's. So that, so happened. that happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the uh, that and I always like, uh, you know, when there's that weird farcical element where uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is in Philip Seymour Hoffman's bathroom <laughs> and then Rebecca Pigeon comes in with flowers and uh, she's walking to like get, get water for the flowers. Uh-huh. And she's like, he goes, wait, wait, where are you going? She's like to get water. He goes. For God's sake, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, just, and he just says it was such a, you know, and it's and it's weird. You know what I don't like about that movie. Go ahead. Uh, I don't like the overuse of the word tits in that movie. Okay, because it makes sense for like William H Macy's character to say tits, right? But Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't seem like he kinda, the kind of guy. His character doesn't seem like the kind of guy who uses the word tits in that in that movie, right? But. I think David Mamet is probably definitely the type of guy who uses the word tits <laughs> and doesn't it doesn't occur to him that anyone would speak any differently. Absolutely. <laughs> Though it should be noted that uh I believe on our awesome death scenes episode you use the term yourself a couple of times, but that's well, more the, for the genre of film. Yeah, when the yeah, connotatively. <laughs> and not I am not Philip Seymour Hoffman in State in Maine. I love the word tits, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Fair enough. Um but the uh I could go on about that for a while because uh, I hate. Okay. I hate the word boobs. Okay. I hate it. Yeah. Because it, 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 breasts are fucking awesome, and I don't want them to be reduced to something that sounds like a child's toy. Yeah. Although you could make the argument that uh, for they are. Yeah. For I don't want to think about them like oh, that. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Yes. Yes. Um, but I mean. Tits sounds like something that's awesome. In fact, it, uh, many people use it as a synonym for awesome. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I just wanted to get that out there. I okay. I hate the word boobs. All right. And I'm okay with the word tits. Now that sounds like a, a forum topic right there. <laughs> tits or boobs, everybody? What's your preference? Um, or if you're like me, I just uh, the word breasts. I'm fine with that. I know it's very. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I'm fine. Very with clinical, but um. But yeah, and so yeah, David Mamet is a great example because visually, you can, I mean, if you if you watch one frame of his movie, you're like, eh, I can't really tell. You listen to one line of his movie, you can usually tell. Yeah. Um. But then, at the same time, I would say, story wise and content, you can you like there are some some directors who 
are definite auteurs. Now, like Roman Polanski, for example. Now, he has a strong visual style as well. Mm-hmm. But I think his visual style kind of changes from movie to movie. I wouldn't, yeah. I'm not sure if I'd be able to tell the same guy that did Chinatown also did uh, The Pianist. Yeah. However, um, like... I will like I will describe in the vaguest possible terms the story of one of Roman Polanski's movies. Uh, a person is basi- basically feels alone and paranoid, and they're paranoid and they're paranoid for a good reason because the world actually is against them. And anytime they get some kind of uh, ally, uh, that ally either turns out to also be against them, but is in disguise, or uh, dies somehow. Yeah. You know, now that's very vague, but still fairly kind of specific. You know, the idea of paranoia and that kind of thing, and the idea of everybody against a single person. Yeah. Um, like, w- now, which movie is that? <laughs> uh, Repulsion. <laughs> the Tenant. It was oh, The Tenant okay. I was talking about, but it also could have been Rosemary's Baby, Ninth Gate, Chinatown, or The Pianist. Or Repulsion. Or Repulsion. Thank you. Um, and then I didn't see. Uh... Yep. Just lost it. Back in the Water? That's um, Oliver Twist. No, he oh he did Oliver Twist as well. Oh right, I didn't see that. Yeah, but Oliver Twist totally fits into that. Yeah, you know, and just so like, literally, I just we just listed what like seven or eight movies that he's done in the last thirty thirty five years, and they all have the basic bare bones plot. You yeah. know, and so he's somebody who through the content, and I don't know how much input he has on the script, but I have to imagine a fair amount. He's somebody who's an auteur simply by the content that he is drawn to. Yeah. You know, um, he's very much into paranoia and stuff like that. Um, John Cassavetes, I mean, you could say that his visual style... I think his visual style definitely stands yeah, out. In the Although sense it's since it's sort of been co-opted but yeah, yeah. Uh, by, you know, by a lot of stuff. Yeah. By... Uh, um, by those mumblecore guys. That's right. That's right. You can read all about David's opinion of mumblecore in the uh, Battleship Pretension blog. Um, but Stop plugging the blog on the show. I feel weird about it. Why? I don't know. You wrote them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry. Yeah, I guess I've already done the forum and the blog so far. We'll get there. We'll get through every single page. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then there are some... You know, I, I say as far as, like, you know, auteurs who are, like, definitely, like, auteurs in every sense. Um, yeah. I'd say, I'd even d- if I don't like them, Tim Burton yeah, is somebody who... The first one that came to my mind was, was Godard. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go back, yeah, that's fine. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's certainly got these sort of, like, uh freewheeling camera style yeah um you know like a, a a fun camera that moves around a lot you know yeah. in different ways and then he's got the 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 jump cuts and the you know sort of he's got like to bring it like in mu- in music terms he's got like weird time signatures in his editing <laughs> you know okay uh but then the sort of uh uh political themes and having overtly political characters in a mm-hmm. lot of his films so yeah he, like on on every on, on so many levels, Godard was was an auteur and is. I mean, he's still oh yeah alive. Um, and I'd say somebody who, I mean, I would say that Alfred Hitchcock has a strong visual style uh, as well. Like through his editing, you can always tell it's his. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could 
you could watch Vertigo and Psycho and The Birds and not know that the same guy directed it. And then, but I guess, I guess he's always, he always makes thrillers as well. So the content as well, but, um, but like his editing style, just, he was very, he always had a very clear idea of what he wanted. Um, and so (laughs) I always viewed his editing as kind of cold, like in the sense that this guy had everything under control at all times, you know, like a computer, (laughs) um, you know, uh, but of course you just you feel so you're so expertly manipulated by him that uh in every movie that he that I've seen of his yeah um that it's just like this guy is a master you know yeah and I'd say he really mostly through the editing I think you know a lot of people talk about uh, uh there's a lot of people who've been called like modern Hitchcock you know like yeah. uh, that was applied to Shyamalan a lot you know yeah. because his movies I think it was because more of his movies are mysterious yeah and and sort of trick the audience but i think in terms of like that kind of uh meticulous filmmaking mm-hmm. i think uh ridley scott is much closer to, oh, yeah. to hitchcock's style of filmmaking hmm. um and you i think you could definitely call ridley scott an auteur uh and he's probably he's probably the more more respected i think of the scott brothers yeah but i think tony scott is more of an auteur oh yeah uh and he was He's in, incredibly influential, I think, in in ways that are sometimes forgotten because he makes because he doesn't make he, because he makes big studio movies. Mm-hmm. People don't think of them as Tony Scott films all the time, you right. know. Uh, so you forget that. I mean, his he's been at the even though he's old now, yeah. <laughs> he's like still at the forefront of a lot of like visual styles uh, yeah. in, in 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 mainstream filmmaking at least. You know, I mean, like Top Gun is kind of like uh, definitive of the eighties look, you know, the sort of using the, uh, using the, using the, like the telephoto lenses and then like putting like, uh, smoke and dust in the air to give, uh, you know, give density to the scene and like, uh, lots of silhouettes and stuff like that. uh, And that's, uh, now when we watch that now, you see like, like flash dance. And I guess Adrian Lyon is also Mm -hmm. anyway, uh, very much a part of that style. But you just think of that as being very, Hollywood eighties, you know, but that's like Tony Scott made decisions to me. Right. I I like Top Gun, by the way. I want to get that out of the way. I've not seen it in (laughs) so long. Who knows? It might be, I I could watch it again. It might be my favorite movie. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I want to get back to Ridley Scott. Okay, go ahead. Um, cause he's, um, he's another guy who's, he's an auteur in, I guess a more abstract way, uh, because his movies don't always look the same, but, uh, they're always he he tends to tell sort of small like personalist stories against a grand backdrop you know okay that it, that's that's even like something like matchstick men yeah uh which i hate yep i'm sure listeners must know that i don't know if i've ever said it on the podcast before but i can't imagine that i haven't you have said it yes because i hate that movie so much yeah uh but it's still like uh, up until it starts to suck, it's a like a father daughter movie, you yeah. know. But then he brings in just this sort of grand, very movieish, very sort of postmodern like look and feel, and like these these beats that are very like part mm-hmm. of like you know thrillers and heist films and stuff like that, you yeah. know. And that's I mean that's not the best example. That's me taking. I mean, it'd be easier to talk about Black Hawk Down, you know, which is a story. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not much of a story to Black Hawk Down, really. Right. But it's about 
it's it's about these guys you know yeah. and uh it's not about their lives necessarily it's not about they don't have much of an arc but it's a very sort of like ground level uh I- intimate portrait of uh of soldiers in in urban warfare yeah but then of course it's a huge huge movie yeah well but I, what's odd is actually i'm and I haven't seen Black Hawk Down in a long time, but when I think of it, the reason that I have a hard time relating to it, even though he does a really good job of putting you right in the middle of everything, I still, I felt like maybe if he, and I don't, I'm not sure if I like the idea of it, but perhaps for me, it would have resonated more. Because he tried to show all of them. Like, he really tried Uh to give each of them a little moment, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with. Like, it's almost like, it's like okay, well, kind of the the concept of like jack of all trades, uh, expert at none. Like, yeah. It's like well, none of them have any resonance because each of them, any like huge amount of resonance because each of them have just a little bit. Yeah, but and you're, so you're approaching it too much from a character standpoint because it's, it's, well, which is what I do. Yeah, let's <laughs> get off on a tangent in a second because I really like Black Hawk Down a lot. Yeah, um, it's the story of a battle, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's the story, right? The impression that it makes upon these these guys yeah. is the point, but yeah. it's not. Uh, I don't know if resonate is what it's supposed to ha- is supposed to happen. Right. As as far as what compels you through the movie, it's the beats of the battle. Yeah. You know, and the the it, the, the guys in the battle ma- manage to at the same time be tangential to the story, but the point of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I it's guess it's a really it, weird movie. Actually, it's and I remember yeah. multiple reviews when it came out referred to it as a somewhat experimental film, and it, uh, hmm. it 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 kind of is because it's it's almost a non-narrative film, even though it takes place chronologically and linearly. There's not a narrative to it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater. Um, but actually, now that I now that I think about it, especially the way that you put it, the way in which Ridley Scott is an auteur, and I think actually. I may have actually defined him as a journeyman in that episode. I think you did. You know, but because he can adapt to each genre, but the way in which he approaches each genre, I guess, is is kind of an auteur way, an auteur. Did I agree uh, with you about Ridley Scott and the Journeyman? I don't recall. Because now I feel like I'm. Because I I basically mentioned. Flip flop. I mentioned Ridley Scott because you mentioned Hitchcock and I wanted to get to Tony Scott. Oh, okay. But uh, then I started to see it. I mean, mean, Blade, Blade Runner's the. The biggest example, I yeah. think. It's his. I think. I think it'll be his defining film. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Years, e- even more so away. than Alien. Yeah. I think probably those two. But um, yeah, but, but that's, yeah, again, but that's that's a that's a you know a noir story, and right. noir is very intimate and introspective yeah. genre. But it's it's huge, you know. The all the like the, yeah. like matte paintings, and special effects, and all the crazy stuff, you know that he. That he's doing. Yeah, and he chooses to focus on just a couple of characters. And yeah, and I guess with Black Hawk Down, the idea of, well, we could... It's something that had been done before, but it's like... But done kind of in a story way, like Saving Private Ryan and Platoon, where there's a definite arc and that kind of thing. Whereas this, it's just, okay, we're going to show you this, not from the point of view of the generals, like in Patton, like Uh from the point of view of people who are in there. So it's almost like you are one of them. Like, yeah. you know everything you need to know about them because you're right there with them. Nothing about how this affects them matters because how do you think it affects them? It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I guess even though he does 
kind of show everybody the fact that he's choosing to show them as opposed to cutting back to their wives or something like that um is uh, <laughs> oops holy um, fuck we, we just noticed how long we've been going yeah oops uh yeah maybe we should get off black hawk down but um <laughs> but yeah so i guess i guess in that way and that's you know to i guess to bring it back into the into the uh into the topic i mean that is kind of the neat thing about the auteur theory is if you notice a th- like if you notice a theme in a filmmaker's other work and then you see one movie that and you're like i don't see it there it's like, well, does that mean he took a break from it for that one movie? Probably not. Yeah. It might just mean that he sees it, he sees what he always sees, but in a different way, and he's choosing to go go about it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. Like, for example, Wes Anderson, somebody who you and I are not huge fans of. Yeah. But um, you saw the Darjeeling Limited, right? No, that's the only one of his okay. I haven't seen. I did not expect to like it, and I turned out really loving it. Um, the thing that bothers me about him as an auteur is, like, I always, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a character person, uh-huh. and he does create fairly strong characters, um, or rather interesting characters, um, but, like, he always seems to put more effort into the production design um, yeah. and, and certain technical elements than he does the character. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, except... If you're somebody like me, right, and but it bothers me too, right. But it is worth mentioning because we started out sort of just you know mentioning the fact that a lot of auteurs are visual auteurs, and then yeah. we kind of brushed it aside and moved on. But we should get to that because that is right. That that's just as as relevant. And like whether I like Wes Anderson or not, he's almost quintessentially that. You know, he's yeah. a, he is a guy that you can watch thirty seconds of his film with the sound off and know it's Wes Anderson. But he does something interesting with Darjeeling Limited as far as, like, production design and such. Um, certainly, like, with the train and the and the composition of shots. And I'd say the way he writes dialogue, you can usually tell it's his. Because, like, yeah. characters just yeah. talk kind of in an, in, an, in an... It's like, here's reality and here... Like, one notch up, that's how they speak. Um, but uh, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of exteriors because uh, it takes place in India. There, there's a lot of exteriors in Darjeeling Limited... And it's like, oh, that's not usually him. Yeah. Or if there is an exterior, it's one that he has complete control over. Yeah. And he's willing to relinquish control in uh, Darjeeling, Darjeeling Limited and just kind of let the let the beauty of the country uh, kind of speak for itself. And I remember I'm like, oh, he's doing something different. And it's like, no, he's doing what he always does, but in a different way. Yeah. Like, He's still deciding, like, yes, that's absolutely the shot we're going to get, but I am not going to change it. Like, like he, he likes to kind of strike the audience with the visual, but in this instance, he's still doing that. Mm-hmm. But he's just... And he's still exerting control over what is being shown, but not the way in which it is being shown. You know, he's yeah. not creating it. Um, and so... So it's it, so the neat thing about the auteur theory is that it it can also be kind of kind of fun and kind of exhilarating when an auteur does do something a little different but still within uh what he what he always does. Yeah. But to go back to visuals as you were saying, David, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to mention Wes Anderson. Who who else would you consider a, like a I mean, I'd maybe David Lynch certainly is yeah. someone that Yeah. Uh, who who else is a is a visual? Well, I auteur? would say first and foremost, and I and I mentioned him a, a moment ago, but we didn't uh, get into it right away. Was uh, Tim Burton? 
Yeah. Who he's somebody who through the way the camera moves and and the art direction certainly um you can always tell when it's yeah. one of his. I mean it's even even animated movies look like it, you know, and just uh and it's and it's really fascinating. I mean it's as much as I love Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, like I I don't I certainly don't like Batman and Batman Returns as much as 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 those, but he really took the world of Batman and found his own tendencies in it. Yeah. And to me, Batman Returns is abs- is gorgeous. It's like probably the most gorgeous to me, the most gorgeous movie he's made. Yeah, Batman Returns is probably my favorite uh, Tim Burton movie. with yeah. Pee Wee being a close second. Yeah, and, but I mean, and of uh, but uh, from a visual standpoint, Sweeney Todd right. is right there with uh, Batman Returns, and visually, Sleepy Hollow is really good too because he creates and only visually. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> There's a couple funny moments. No, I know you kind of like yeah. that movie. Compared I should have me. mentioned some of those beheadings and the awesome deaths, <laughs> but um, but like in what what I like about him in uh, in uh, Sleepy Hollow is that because he usually works in like very urban environments, you know. Uh-huh. Um, whereas in this, it's all about the forest, and he basically creates this forest and this you know very outdoors kind of town nothing urban about it yeah but it it closes in on you just as if you were in the middle of gotham city yeah um he manages in a way that's kind that's kind of exhilarating like it's it doesn't happen very often where a movie can 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 like kind of spark my imagination simply by how it looks and the, and the general feel of it um but he he manages to do it so even when he's even when his stories are only so-so and the characters are only so-so, I can usually still find something to be uh, excited about yeah. in the visuals. But You know, I'm just uh, thinking how we were saying that, you know, auteurs and journeymen are each both respectable in their own ways. When I look at sort of my, if I had one, like list of favorite directors of all time, mm-hmm. they're mostly auteurs, <laughs> you know? I mean, certainly Fellini, uh, Joe Dante is a... I think he's a, yeah. a a perfect example because he's he's another guy who works on multiple levels where his stuff is is uh, zany and madcap, yeah. you know, in its in its visuals and pacing. But then it also has it, I mean, it's there'd be no Giordante if it weren't for Looney Tunes. Yeah, uh, not only not just because he did the Looney Tunes movie, but that's his hugest influence. Yeah, and it's it, and it's very much like that in that Looney Tunes is zany and fast paced and madcap, but also almost. Uh, anarchistic. It's oh, yeah. very anti-authority. Okay. Sorry there. <laughs> Easy. <there. laughs> I ran out of fuel there in my mouth. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Joe Dante. Uh, I got to stop talking for a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I tell you, because uh, you were mentioning visually a moment ago, and as far as like, case uh, we've been talking about like production design and editing and, and mm-hmm. all that, but like as far as just you know, camera filters and just the way the camera moves and the composition of shots. Uh, Michael Mann oh, uh, yeah. is astounding. I mean, yeah. Jen, who, uh, my wife, who is a photographer, um, she loves him because yeah. so many of his shots are just so, cause he does something really, I'd say the insiders, the best might be the best example of it. His, his shots are always, are always really interesting and they're not, like nothing you nothing you see very often uh-huh. but and they're visually interesting but 
it's always in service of the character. Like he will find, he will use the camera to, in a moment of like quietness, when a character is not speaking, he will use the camera to tell you about what the character is feeling or thinking. And it never seems overbearing to me. Yeah. And to me, the insider in which like Russell Crowe plays a character who really keeps, you know, he plays his cards, you know, close to the vest. I mean, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't really let a lot of emotion show, but you always know that he is just just reeling with emotion, and the camera tells you that. You mm-hmm. know, but it never but oddly enough, it never seems over the top, it never seems melodramatic. You know, there's no like yeah. dramatic s- swoops that show, oh, look how noble he is, or well, look how flawed he is. Michael Mann uses uh music to hit those notes. That's true. That's, That's the, true. I'm sure I brought it up in the show before, but uh, yeah. I I would be the hugest Michael Mann fan if not yeah. for the fact that he always seems to pick terrible music in yeah. his movies. The exception I'd say is the insider. Yeah, the insider is that one is a good I think that one will will age well. And I guess heat to some extent, but to some extent. But like certainly Manhunter has not aged well. Yeah. I haven't gone back to Collateral, but it's only been 4 years or so and yeah. I I bet that that music sounds dated. Is that yeah. recall? It's uh and certainly Miami Vice, which is just a right. bad film from right. from A to Z. And I'm sure uh if we took Mike Schmidt's advice and watched Thief, I have to imagine there'd be a lot of... Because that's even earlier than Manhunter. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's he's somebody who... Uh, I guess, I mean, have we really ever talked about... I mean, I guess we talked about John Alonzo, but, I mean, we've never really talked about cinematography in general, like, as a larger yeah, we'll, issue. Yeah, we should do that someday. We'll do, we'll do that someday. <laughs> but, but he's somebody who... Uh, Michael Mann is somebody who really... Uh, creates fascinating shots that are in service of the emotions of yeah. the character. It's really it's it's really interesting that he manages to achieve both of those. Well, he almost always uses uh what's his name? Spinotti? Dante Spinotti, yeah. Yeah. Um and that's that's great when when people have that sort of relationship, right. you know, like uh I mean the the it's hard to even think of a Spielberg anymore without yeah. Janusz Kaminski. I mean, yeah. certainly there were he was uh, making great films before that, right? But those two have become so tied together that, like, the Janusz Kaminski look is like the Spielberg look now, which is, I'd say, to the detriment of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, right? Which we talked about with Josh, right? On this um, show. But uh, now I did want to mention uh, one of my favorite auteurs, um, which is Jim Jarmish. Oh, who sure. He every like if there was ever like an auteur who is consistent in every single aspect of his film. Yeah. It would be Jim Jar. Well, I mean like there'd be Orson Welles, but also Jim Jarmish, like his script, his pacing, his, the acting, the visuals, the, the framing, the framing, the, video, the yeah. editing, every single thing works together. Like, you know what Jim, <coughs> Jim Jarmish is a master at, uh, making it look easy. His films right. look they they don't look fussed over at all. Right. But you you have to be great to do what he does. Yeah. You, you have to just have it in you. I think in your bones to just be. I think I think Jim Jarmusch uh, was born to make films. Yeah. Because there are so few directors. Uh, I mean, I I would also consider put Cronenberg in this. Oh yeah. In this camp. And I would put a, a guy we're going to talk about someday down the line, Patrice Leconte, a French filmmaker, in 
this camp of guys that you can't you can't learn to be that good to to have that sort of mastery over 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 visual storytelling right and i mean not everybody likes jim jarmusch but like well they're wrong that you know what absolutely <laughs> um but he is i mean it's i remember uh years ago i was uh i was at the minnesota state fair uh-huh. and uh they had all you know it's huge fairgrounds and stuff and so they uh they had like an art building and so you go and see like artists from around the state that have been like selected, you know, their paintings have been selected. And uh and they're really good and really interesting and there was one piece that was very is very abstract and it was, you know, it was deceptively simple. Uh-huh. And sure enough, you li- it's like, wow, somebody's saying something that you expect somebody to say in a movie, but not in real life, which what, was I could do that or my I, kid could do that. I could do that. Yeah. Like I mean just this guy behind me he's, he's like well, I could do that. That's not, you know, that it's like that, that, what is that? That's so easy. And I, you know, and you want to, of course I have no courage or guts, but I want to be like, okay, two things first. Okay. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. If you could do that, you would have by now. Exactly. Second, even it, like it never occurred to you to do it but, yeah. because you see no beauty in it, you know? Yeah. And so like Jim Jarmish, like you said, like somebody could look at like, he just set up a camera yeah. and, and did that. It's like, okay, yes, but how long is that shot? Yeah. And why is it that long? Like, it's just, and and look how well the shot is framed. Like, it's just, like you said, he makes it look easy. Like, I have so much respect for Jim Jarmusch that he's always... And a little bit of envy, maybe. <laughs> an insane amount of envy. Yeah. You know, um, but he's, you know, did you ever see Broken Flowers? I forget. Yeah. You did. Okay. And it just like he's always going to do it his way. And I like that. Although I always <laughs> I think I've said this on the show before that I wish Hollywood for like one year would let me run it <laughs> so that I could because there's so many experiments that I have. It's like, OK, let's take a Jim Jarmusch script, give it to Michael Bay. Let's take a Michael Bay script. Granted, he doesn't write them, but let's take a script that he's going to make. Let Jim Jarmusch make that. And both sides like people who love Michael Bay and love his types of movies and then people who love Jim Jarmusch and love his types of movies they would i think they would wind up having a lot of respect for the other side because granted i think both men would do really fascinating things uh-huh. you know i don't think either of them would really fail but they would just take these movies and make them into something fascinating yeah. one way or another <laughs> um and so because that's that to me like is is an amazing. I never saw the the five obstru- obstructions, but I know that's not exactly it. But I like uh, the but, idea yeah. of taking an auteur and just saying, "Okay, make a kids movie, Jim Jarmusch." You know, yeah. It's like here you go, John Cassavetes, make a thriller. Oh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. That's what you came up with. That is amazing. You know, <laughs> it's just uh, it five astounds obstructions, me. By the way, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that it's a good movie, that it's something I would recommend just to someone who likes to watch movies. Yeah. But if you are interested in either making films or being serious about criticism about them, yeah. it's a good movie to watch. Yeah, it seems like it would. So few movies are just straight up experimental with, you know, yeah. like that. But um, now, were there any, uh, I mean, we didn't really want this to turn into like a rattling off of different auteurs, but more well, along we, we the lines We did talk of about sort of themes and then... Right, them, pull certain auteurs into them, but there is one director that I did want to get a discussion of. Okay, go ahead. Uh, out of you, and that's David Fincher. 
David Fincher, okay. Because that's a guy who, I mean, I think visually it's clear, clearly that guy's on a tour. Yeah. Uh, it's very similar. Uh, everything, all his movies look pretty much the same, you know. Yeah. Some of that, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's not. Right. Uh, but it seems like, for me at least, when I saw Zodiac, which is amazing. Yep. And his best film. Yep. Um, By far. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw it, it's like I discovered another level of him, like uh, the thematic thing like we're talking about, we're right. talking about with other directors. Uh, it's like I saw it in him, this story of obsession, yeah. you know, and uh, being being obsessive, being sort of a workaholic, uh, and knowing that about him as a filmmaker, he's a guy who does like 75 takes of like yeah. simple shots and stuff like that, which Michael Mann is known for doing too. Yeah. Um, it's like suddenly you can go back to his films and kind of see that he was... I mean, Zodiac is certainly the most expressive of that theme. Right. But you can see it in his other films. It's like it's sort of a... There's a like a like a retrofitted <laughs> yeah. uh, auteur level where you can see that in, in, in Seven and in The Game. Yeah. Uh, and, I always another. forget he did The Game, but it, absolutely he did The Game. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, he's... Uh, I don't like The Game, by the way. I like Seven a lot. But I like certain aspects of The Game. But, uh, but yeah, it, I like the Spanish prisoner more, um, cause that came <laughs> out around the same time and I always compared it to, uh, yeah. to the game, but that's, um, not, that's not David Fincher. That's not David Fincher. Yes. <laughs> no, he may. Yeah. I like to compare, uh, you know, the same movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and he's somebody who, you know, you, you think like, oh, well, thematically all his movies are similar, but he does, he's somebody who. He's like he's he's kind of like Hitchcock. I mean, you could say that m- the vast majority, if not, just go ahead and make a blanket statement and say all auteurs are probably very meticulous, like are so, with the possible exception of John Cassavetes, <laughs> who yeah. is uh, yeah because because uh, I question that because I think like, um, do you think Spike Jones is is a meticulous guy? It feels like it. It seems like he would have to be. I think. Well, I, I don't know. I think Spike Jones is kind of an idiot savant. But, okay. But, um, uh, I, I think he just has. I think he just happens to be good. Okay. Uh, at that, and uh, is seems to be very annoying. <laughs> Whenever I see him uh, or read his interviews. Uh, oh, okay. I've never read any interviews yeah, with him, he, but uh, he gets on my nerves. But okay. He, he makes amazing films. Um, but. But yeah, the so, and he cast Cameron Diaz in being John Malkovich, who is kind of the same way to me. Like sometimes, I mean, sometimes she's terrible, but sometimes she'll be in a movie, and I'll be like, "That's amazing what she's doing." Yeah, how is she like when I and then I see her on like Leno? How is she like that? Yeah, like somebody who uh, walks into a Seven Eleven and accidentally foils a robbery. Like, <laughs> right. and you're just like, like this person's a hero, kind of, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh yeah but like you see the the meticulousness of David Fincher who like you said I mean I'm not I'm I'm not a big fan of a lot of his movies but they they're all fairly well made and at the very least you can you can always tell who made them because you they just they're so they're so expertly made it, it, that's hard to uh-huh. explain but uh like in Yeah but then there, I mean there's just certain visual styles you know right you can uh he likes to uh frame shots so that you can see the ceiling uh he likes to shoot mm. 
He likes to shoot on locations with ceilings, and you can always see the ceiling in his movies. Hmm. Uh, it seems like. See, and that, like right there, like that's something that it doesn't it doesn't occur to me because when I think of like filmmakers who shoot the ceiling, well, I think of Orson Welles because it's like, well, you have to shoot the ceiling when you're uh, shooting straight up. Yeah. You know, like, but. He does it, you know, Fincher does it in but a way But I think he does it in a different way. It's sort of like, I mean, the biggest example, All the President's Men is a great movie where you oh, can, yeah. like, in that in those offices you can always see the ceiling and it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And especially from a cinematography standpoint, like lighting, all that, and everything. But it's not just because it's a low-angle shot. Like, it's creating an uh, an, an aura of claustrophobia. Yeah. You know, and that, I think David Fincher does the same thing as was done in all the president's men. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of people have actually compared those two uh those two movies. Um but uh yeah, and so I mean the the auteur th- you know, I feel like uh I mean anytime we've ta- I remember when we talked about like music in movies or talked about documentaries like it's a subject that that's bigger than one episode. It's bigger than yeah. anything that we c- than any little example we like we've given several examples of the different elements of the auteur theory. Yeah. But it's still I feel like we still haven't explained it well enough but it's it's one of those things that if you are as david said if you take criticism seriously and if you've watched a lot of movies and really have taken the time to study them and, uh, and kind of understand them on as many levels as possible you kind of know it when you see it you know i yeah. mean sometimes it's really obvious like tim burton or I'm michael mann or something yeah. but at the same time robert altman is definitely an auteur yeah both at the kind of stories he tells and the way he tells them, and the he way he uses w- his camera was. I'm sorry. Yes, um, yeah, he's dead. He's dead. But uh, but he was definitely an auteur in the way that he uh, made his in the way that he made his films. Even though his stories were always very different, with the exception of like the big cast. But even then, si- uh, Secret Honor, which has a cast of one, mm-hmm. uh, like you can even tell that's one of his. Like it's just he's. But that's something that like if you were to show to kind of the the average movie watcher, not anybody that's really dumb, but just kind of casual about movies. Like, if you showed them Nashville, and then Secret Honor, and then Dr. T and the Women, yeah. and then uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, like, I, I don't think they would know that it was the same guy. But, like, the auteur theory is something that, as you say, I feel like if you get to a certain point in uh, film appreciation, uh-huh. uh it just becomes common sense, even yeah. if you may you may not even know the name for it, but you can always tell like, like oh yes, that's definitely an Altman film, you know, or something. But uh, anyway, so uh, but if you want to discuss it uh, on the forum, you always yep. can. If you want to uh, email us uh, examples of uh, auteurs that you're frustrated that we didn't bring up, uh, yeah. well, you cannot do that. You can you do know. that on the forum, honestly. Absolutely, and talk about it with other people who aren't us. And. <laughs> But we read them. Yes, we do. Um, but but yeah. Um, but you can e- you can always email us, of course, at uh, battleshippretension at hotmail dot com. Um, and then uh, okay, one last thing. Uh, okay, so very very loyal listeners may recall that uh, in our like second or third episode, we were very we were you know we were lucky enough to have been mentioned on Never Not Funny by Jimmy Pardo. Uh, yeah, it was very nice of him. Uh, and uh, it helped us out immensely in just getting some some early listeners quickly. Yeah, um, and, and so now that was, we're as successful as he is. Absolutely, no question. <laughs> Incidentally, we're going to start charging. Um, <laughs> but that's not what I want to talk about. 
Um, that's not true, everybody. We're not going to do that. Not as, not if those donations keep coming in. Um, anyway, so which they've been. I mean, they've been trickling in. You guys can really maybe put your foot on the gas a little bit. And Absolutely. With with the donations. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Got a donate button right there on the page. Um, <laughs> we did it for your convenience. This is ridiculous. All right. Um, but anyway, so uh, uh, some listeners uh, named Andrew and Eli started up a, a podcast, uh, and it's uh, it's it's new. I mean, as far as I know, there's only one episode uh, available, so it's you know a fledgling podcast. But uh, head on over. It's called Late Night at the Movie Emporium. Yeah. Um, and you Which can. Is a good name. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Not as good as ours, but still no. pretty good. Um, and uh, so you can find them on iTunes, and uh, or you can just Google it. I don't remember what the uh, official website is, but I imagine if you type in "late night at the movie Emporium," I can't imagine a lot of things will <laughs> right. pop up. So, uh, so go and listen to them uh, and give them uh, your support. So, uh, anyway, just by listening to them, financial support you should give to us. Throw that our way. Yeah, they haven't it. earned it. All right, <laughs> they're one episode in. We're what ninety six. Ninety six. Okay, so yeah, maybe in two years. <laughs> you know, Andrew and Eli. But uh but anyway, so uh thanks everybody for uh for listening and uh Um Oh uh, give us good reviews on iTunes. Yeah, yes, thank you. And uh give us good reviews on iTunes. Uh we've we've gotten several recently and that's very nice of you. And uh David and I make jokes of course about the donate button and, and uh iTunes and but we do certainly appreciate everything that we, yeah, we really has done. Do. So uh so thank you very much. And uh we'll uh, get you next time. All right, bye. Bye.